Welcome to the Grace Long Beach Podcast, a series of sermons from our weekly Sunday gathering. For more information on our church community, values, and service times, please visit www.gracelb.org. Thanks for listening. Today's reading is Psalm 104, verses 1 through 5. Praise the Lord, my soul. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. The Lord wraps himself in light as with a garment. He stretches out the heavens like a tent. He makes the clouds his chariot and rides on the wings of the wind. He makes winds his messengers, flames of fire his servants. He set the earth on its foundations. It can never be moved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Uh, my name's Daniel Long. I'm a, I'm a pastor here and grateful to be with you. So we're, we're going to be talking about a psalm this morning. We've been in a series over the summer called Seven Psalms, Seven Signs, in which every other week we're looking at a different psalm, um, kind of looking at the way that we as people might engage God. And then on the, the other weeks we're looking at a sign from the book of John, thinking about how God engages the world. Um, so this morning, I want to talk about Psalm 104. And actually, this sermon or this conversation is really moving toward helping us hear the psalm um, read in its entirety, which we will do at the end. Uh, now, this psalm is like 35 verses, and often when things like that happen and they're long, we just don't read them out loud together. Um, and I think that this psalm works, uh, and it's intended to work if we kind of take it as a whole. So I just really want to talk about the psalm and kind of my experience with it over the summer, because this is a psalm that I kind of came to at the beginning of summer, and I was like, I don't know why, but I was really intrigued by the psalm. It's a psalm of creation, uh, and it's really beautiful, but I didn't know what to say about it, or maybe I didn't feel like I was in a place um, where I could talk about it. Uh, and, and kind of over time, the this psalm has done some work on me, and it's kind of made me aware of a, of a few different things, and things that I'm actually excited to talk about, and it's kind of stirred up some longings within me that I'd like to share. Um, and it kind of got me thinking about the Bible in general. And kids, I'm going to talk to you for a minute. You might think that we as adults, like we've got it all figured out. And, and you hear us maybe talk about the Bible and, and how, you know, we read it and it's just so amazing and it makes total sense to us right away. Uh, and you guys should read it. And then all of a sudden you who are younger open it up and you're like, everyone was lying. Um, this is the most confusing thing that I've ever encountered. I don't know what to do kind of with some parts of the Bible. Uh, and I guess what I want to say is that's totally, absolutely normal. And some adults are like, thank you. <laughs> Okay, that's good to know. Um, because I think with the, like any good text, it does a work on you if you let it. It's easy to think that we can come to something, um, any type of text, whether that's something we read, it's something we watch, something we listen to, and, and we think we just need to get it right away, and if we don't, there's something wrong with us. But the Bible 
is really wonderful in that if you take time with it, it will do a work on you. It will teach you in some ways how to read it. And actually, it will help you become the type of person that can read it, if that makes any sense. Like, you become a person who's able to engage with it on a different level. And I share all of that because I think that's kind of what has happened with me um, over time, kind of spending time with, with Psalm 104. Because the thing about the psalm that I think is so interesting is that it's extremely positive. It is like a total glass half full psalm. And I'm actually a glass half full person, but I'm like totally comfortable with like melancholy. It's my jam. I love it. Like I can just kind of sit in it. And so to read like Psalm 104 and it's totally effusive with joy, I'm like, I don't know how to make sense of this or even how to talk about it in, in an authentic way. But I've come to really appreciate it. And that's what I want to talk about. So I'm going to make some observations on the psalm some things that kind of came to mind for me and kind of the work that it's done kind of in my own life as I've thought about it. So Psalm 104, if you want to turn there, we're going to look at the text. Um, it's going to be on pages 502, 503. So there's a Bible in front of you in your chair. You can open it up and we're just going to go through it here and there. So the first thing I want to talk about with this psalm is how it moves, kind of how it works like in a spatial way. So the psalm kind of begins with, like, the general, and it moves in toward the specific. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, it's kind of bracketed with, bless the Lord, in the very beginning, and if you look at the end, in verse 35, it says, bless the Lord, O my soul. So this is a praise psalm. It's kind of wanting to, to grab our attention to know how we are to approach it, that it's to foster praise for the one God who has created all things. But how are we to praise, and for what are we to praise? And that's how it moves from the general to the specific. So it begins with this idea, O Lord my God, verse 1, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with lights as with a garment. And it talks about stretching out the heavens like a tent, and lays beams of his chambers on the waters. And it keeps going with this kind of spatial idea of looking up, like you're to look up as you begin this psalm. And then it kind of moves down, if you were to look at verse 5, almost like the, the camera panning down. And then it begins to talk about the earth. He set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. You covered it with the deep as with the garment. The water stood above the mountains. So you have the camera looking up at the beginning of the psalm, kind of panning down, wide-angle lens on the earth. And then as we kind of move through the psalm, it's going to zoom in just a little bit closer. Now, if you were to go to verses 10 through 23, it's going to basically be like a, like a montage of these different moments and elements that the earth contains, right? It's going to talk in verse 10 of, of springs gushing forth in valleys. And now it's going to be talking about things that inhabit these spaces. Now, this is going to take place from verses 10 through 23 until we get into something very specific. So you make springs gush forth in the valleys, and they give drink to every beast of the field. Verse 13, from your lofty abode you water the mountains, and the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Verse 14, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock. Verse 16, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. Verse 19, he made the moon to mark the seasons. Verse 20, you make darkness and it is night. 
Verse 21, the young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food. Verse 22, when the sun rises, they steal away. To verse 23, man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So the psalm is working to basically say, here are these different elements of the earth and of creation, and here are some of the things, the creatures that inhabit the earth. But here are also things that God has put in place to water the earth, trees so that so that birds can build their nests, night and day, so that people can go out and do their work. There's this sense of order to the world, which is so central to the imagination of the people of God, in particular to Israel, who, who thought in reference to many of these different creation myths that they had, where the wor- world was born out of chaos, here is a world born out of order. Here is a world God has made to work the way that it's supposed to work. And there are these, all these, and it's abundant, and it's extravagant. I mean, one of these things that I kind of carried with me, I was on vacation last week, it's in verse 16, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly. Now, I was in the Sequoia National Forest, and we went and saw this um, massive, massive tree called General Grant. Here's a picture of it. Uh, and like, I just can't even tell you like, how big it is. Because uh, you, you, you kind of stand in front of it, and you're like, yeah, we're going to go see trees. Big deal. But then you kind of walk through, and you're like, and you begin to kind of be next to these trees, and you kind of see people in reference to the trees, and it's pretty incredible like how abundant, how extravagant this is. Now, General Grant, also called the nation's Christmas tree, which I don't get, um, uh, but I just want to give some, give some details about this tree that kind of blow my mind. So it's the second largest tree in the world. The, other, the largest tree is in, also in Sequoia National Park. It's General Sherman. Now, it's just over 267 feet tall. Now, the circumference is 107.6 feet. Think about that, the circumference, right? If, like all the way around 107.6 feet. That's how, like, how many people would it take to just try to hug this tree, right? Now, it's nearly 40 feet in diameter. The volume of this tree is 46,608 cubic feet. And it weighs 1,254 tons. Now, how many pounds is that? 2,508,000 pounds. That's a big tree. And it's absolutely extravagant and crazy and something to behold. But here's the thing about the world, is that these, these types of things exist all over the place. And the psalmist is actually really concerned with these types of things. Now, if you were to look at some of the characteristics of the psalm, and I'm going to go through it again, highlighting some other points, you can't help but hear the, the echo, or I guess not even the echo, the repetition of the word you. So if you, I'm just going to go through it. Verse 1, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty. Verse 6, you covered it with the deep. Verse 7, at your rebuke they fled, your thunder they took to flight. Verse 8, you appointed for them. Verse 9, you set boundary. Verse 10, you make springs. 13, from your lofty abode, then the earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. Verse 14, you cause the grass to grow. Verse 16, uh, the trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, uh, and that doesn't have the word you, but 
it should. Um, and then you go to verse 20. You make darkness, and it is night. Verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. The earth is full of your creatures. Verse 26. There go the ships and Leviathan which you formed. Verse 28, when you open your hand. Verse 29, when you hide your face, when you take away their breath. Verse 30, when you send forth and when you renew. Verse 31, may the Lord rejoice in his works. I mean, all this sense of the psalmist is basically just wanting to say, I can't help but look at the world around me and have my attention turned to God. Like if I was to consider all the things in front of me and around me, there is nothing I can do but just say you, God are certainly the one who is responsible for all this. You did this. You did this. Your works. Your works. Your word. Over and over and over and over again. Now, if you were to pay attention to that, it's in some way to instill within us this same sort of desire, or at least this conviction, that we should be able to look at the world and consider God as the one who created all of it. But the psalm keeps going, and it does something really interesting in verse 24. So instead of kind of going from the general to the specific, it begins to look at the the seas. And it talks about the sea, and it talks about this this thing, this creature called Leviathan. Now, if you want to know something about Old Testament theology... And even going into New Testament, here's one thing. The sea was always viewed as a threat. The sea was always viewed as this kind of sense of of one of God's ultimate enemies. And the fact that God can tame it and can kind of enclose it is is something to behold and that speaks to his power. And Leviathan, which comes up in the Old Testament, specifically in Job, as one of these cosmic creatures that is constantly a threat to God is actually kind of reinterpreted in the psalm as like kind of having a play date with God. Verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works and wisdom. You've made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Here is the sea great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. What's going on here? Why this sort of reinterpretation? Well, I wonder if something the psalmist is intending to do is that what was to be feared and to be seen as a threat is now reinterpreted as something to behold, as something to wonder at. Like the point of the psalm is not to instill fear, but to instill awe and majesty and to say, wow, God, even this is something that you play in. And this idea of play and delight is so central. Now, if you were to go down to verse 31, may the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Now, people who study this psalm, Old Testament scholars, say this is actually really unique language to the psalm. There's lots of, lots of language in the psalms about how men, how humanity, how people are to be praising God and to rejoice for the Lord's works. But the psalmist is actually asking that God himself would rejoice in the work that he's made. Now, why would the psalmist do that? It's almost as if God's delight is so connected to God's sustaining 
of the world. The fact that God is delighted in what he's made means that God will continue to provide for it and to sustain it. It is so intimately connected to one another. And do you think of God as a God who looks upon the world that he's created and delights in it? Do you see yourself as a person whom God delights in? I mean, this idea of of delight being connected to God is something that I find so beautiful, that God is delighted in creation, and why the psalmist wrote this psalm was to continue to make sure that God still delights in it, so that he will continue to take care of it. I love that. Here's another interesting thing about this psalm. Now, if you were to go through the psalm, you're never prepared for the end of it. Verse 35, let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. It's almost like a record scratch, right, in the psalm. You have this amazing splendor talking about the world um, and all the specificity of the world. And then it gets to this part and you're like, what? Like if you were to actually, the lectionary, and they read it in some liturgical churches, they don't, they leave this out. They don't read this part because it doesn't fit. And I'd say, okay, yeah, it totally makes sense because unless you're going to talk about it, why would you read it? How does it work there? Well, here's one of the ways I think it might work because it's not really clear who the sinners are or who the wicked might be. Well, in the context of this psalm, I wonder if the sinners and the wicked are those who do not actually engage the world as one who's been created by God. That those who are sinful, those who are wicked, at least in the imagination of the psalmist, is the one who can look at this world and never consider the God behind the world, the God responsible for the world. And when one fails to remember the God who is responsible for creating all things, will fail to recognize themselves as one who is created. So I wonder if that's why the psalmist can go through all of this and kind of have this, this general statement about the sinners and wicked because it's, it's people who are not willing to live in the world in the way that God intended it. I mean, I can't help but think of Genesis 3. Is it not the fact that Adam and Eve wanted not to be created by God but wanted to be like God that then wreaked havoc on the rest of creation? Now, if you look at this in reference to, like, the, maybe the dissonance of Leviathan, who should be the enemy of God, but instead is God's plaything in the psalm, here you have, like, the wicked, the people who are the ones to, who are God's enemies and to fear. And I think it's such a fascinating thing that the psalm does. It doesn't let itself kind of be in this world of sentimentality and and just complete beauty, but actually acknowledges the fact that how do we account for that the rest of creation often works the way it's supposed to, and yet we don't? How is it that that the night can become night, and the sun can rise and set, and the moon can rise, and the earth can water things, and yet here we are as people who are the ones ultimately to fear? Because we are the ones who often don't live in the way that God intended things to be. We are the ones who wreak havoc 
on our own lives, in the lives of others, and in the lives, or in the life of creation. And so I wonder if that's something that, that is going on in this psalm, is that now people are the ones who are to take note, to say, am I living in reference to the true reality, which is I am created by God, that I am given breath and life and sustenance and provision by God. I am not God. I am creation. I am created by him. And I think that's some of the, and as I think about all of these things, I think this is some of the work that the psalm has done on me. And I just kind of want to name a few things. It's made me, kind of this psalm in particular and living with it, it's made me feel small, but in a good way. Like, I feel like this psalm, or what it can do, is it kind of right-sizes us. Um, it, can, it can become this, life can become this thing where I feel like I am so much more responsible and capable, and I can kind of create my own life, and I begin to live in this way, and I begin, I begin to like live in, in an elevated way, which doesn't necessarily, for me, well, no, it's connected to pride, but it creates a lot of anxiety and stress, does it not? Like, when we aren't living in the way that we are intended to, as people who are being given life by God, and if life is mine then to create, to take, and to hold, then all of a sudden I am so much more worried about the life that I am creating. And I begin to live life in this way as if I am responsible completely for it. And it creates this way of being that is totally unhealthy, completely filled with stress and anxiety, completely filled with this sense that I am in control and I just need to take back control. And, and from, my, from my kids, they just take my, they're, they're so, they're not in my control. Time, it's just wasting away and I need to grab hold of it. Isn't it interesting that like, I think one of the beautiful things about this psalm is that when kind of ordered rightly and looking at the world correctly, there's this sense in which you're kind of taken up into it. And it makes me think of time, how often I think of time as like an enemy and time as, as, as something it's taking life away from me rather than as an opportunity, as a moment, as an opportunity, as a gift to maybe be aware and to be present. And so this psalm makes me think about all of these things, but it makes me feel small and in a good way. It right-sizes me. Another thing it fosters within me is this desire, or at least this, like, to just be in awe and to wonder and to be okay with mystery, which I think we are just often not okay with. We are not, I'm not okay with mystery. I want to know things. I want to know how things work. I want to know how things work so that, in this, again, I can kind of manipulate or just kind of hedge my bets and, and be prepared but so much of this world is unknowable. So much of what we are doing, we can't know. And part of that is because we, are be, we have been created by God, and therefore we have limits. And those limits are good. It's part of what it means to be human. But we work so hard to try to transcend them. And so therefore we lose the ability to engage mystery, to be in awe, and to wonder at things. Abraham Joshua Heschel a famous um, Jewish theologian says this, our goal should be to live life in radical amazement. Get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. 
Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. Awareness of the divine begins with wonder. This sense of mystery seems crucial to who we are, but so much of our lives are lived looking down. And you can't write a psalm like this unless you're actually you're looking up kind of aware of everything, which means you can't appreciate the world around you unless you're taking it in, unless you're actually able to be present to it. And kids, this is why we need you. Now, if you're a kid, raise your hand if you consider yourself a kid even. Now, we need you because you know how often to engage the world in a way where you are just present to it and nothing else matters. Actually, at the expense of our sanity sometimes. <laughs> um, like, my three-year-old is, he, he just walks around slowly, looking at things, picking things up, and it drives me crazy. Uh, because I'm trying to get somewhere so fast all the time. But that's a problem. He seems to, he's enjoying the way that things are, probably in a way better than I am. He's the one who's actually attuned that the world is created and he is but an observer and, and that creation is something to, to witness and to engage and to enjoy. And that's a question I have that I've been asking myself that I post to you. When was the last time that you actually enjoyed something? Not consumed it, not used it, but you were able to savor it and to enjoy it. When was that? And what was that? I'd be curious to know. Because I think a lot of our lives can be lived in which we are not actually engaged in the world around us and enjoying it and delighting in it as God himself delights in the world he's made. I mean, it's an incredible thing that we are a part of this at all. And, and I think if we fail or neglect to notice, then we actually neglect to notice each other. And the people around us become things to use and to control and to manipulate instead of someone to engage and to appreciate and to enjoy. Do you know what the most complex thing in all the world is? The human brain. The most complex thing, and, and like neurologists will tell you this, the most complex thing in all of the history of the world is the human brain. And one of my favorite theologians says, and everybody has one. <laughs> Which, if you think about that for a moment, is pretty remarkable. That this, that this thing called life, this, this, this world in which we live, the people around us, created by God, created by God to be witnessed, to be enjoyed, to wonder at. I mean, it's just an incredible thing to consider. And I guess the question is, 
Are we aware of it? And that's the question I've been asking myself. Am I aware of it? And now I can talk about these longings all the time. Like, this is what this psalm has stirred up in me. And I wish I could say, here are the practical things you can do to go and be more present. But I feel like I am, I, we need one another to figure that out. Because it's just so difficult, right? I mean, it's so hard to, to figure out how to be present in the world. Because there are so many other things to do and, and to, well, I mean, that's it, to do. So many other things. But I think we need each other. Like, one of the things that we have that God has given us the ability to do is to be with one another and to figure out how might we inhabit our lives in a way that's different than we often are able to. How do we inhabit our lives as people created by God, given a world that's sustained and provided by God, so that we might actually live as beings who've been created and been given life, we can receive all of this as gifts.